Netflix has made a brand for itself with lush, beautifully shot documentary uh, series like Chef's Table, Abstract the Art of Design, and The Toys That Made Us. But this year's documentary slate takes on a more activist tone with Errol Morris's Wormwood about a possible CIA murder and cover-up in the 1950s and Dirty Money about corruption and business coming next week and Flint Town about the Flint, Michigan water crisis coming in March. And Rotten, a new six-episode series just out, looks into the honey, peanut, garlic, chicken, milk, and cod businesses. Netflix documents instances of fraud and theft that have shown many blind spots in food safety regulation. Politico reporter Christine Hawney who put two corrupt bankers in prison as a New York Times reporter, was the lead investigator on the Rotten series and now covers the food business for Politico. Tell me what happened in the UK that resulted in the owner of an Indian restaurant going to prison. Yes, what's fascinating about the peanut episode is that in the United States, um, if an individual or restaurant owner um, knowingly contaminates food with peanuts and gives it to someone with an allergy, it's not necessarily considered a crime. So we actually looked in an early domestic case of a family who ordered like a grilled cheese sandwich from Panera and the, um, and someone from Panera put peanut butter on it and the child ended up in the hospital, et cetera, et cetera. And you couldn't file a police report in the United States. Switch over to England, there's a restaurant owner there who actually owned a chain of very successful Indian restaurants, and he knowingly replaced peanut powder um, with what should have been almond powder and put it in his chicken tikka masala. And a college student nearly died, and then a man who was trained as a chef died from what would have been like less than a spoonful. So, um, it's fascinating. Um, he was convicted and, you know, you're always cautious when you're covering crime, like especially in England right now with kind of a post Brexit world, was there any kind of discrimination against him? That's something that we looked into, but this was really an open and shut case of someone who knowingly continued to put peanuts in his food, even though he had been warned, even though a woman nearly died and then another man died and he was convicted and went to prison for that. Why did he keep doing this just because peanuts are cheaper and it just never got through his head that that it could result in him being in serious trouble? Peanuts are cheaper and he had a lot of expenses. You know, he was paying private school. His He was, you know, incredibly extended. That was something that also came up in that trial. So he just kind of kept doing it, even though he had been warned. The other thing is in the UK, um, we found that like takeout boxes have very clear labels. So they had the receipt from the order that said peanut allergy. If you purchased um, takeout food now, there would be a big label on top that would say, you know, this, this product does not contain peanuts. So it's much more cut and dry there than it is here. You get into the allergen aspects of peanuts a little bit, uh, in, in the second half of that episode, why is it that peanuts drive such a violent reaction versus a lot of other allergens? I mean, it's like a really violent reaction and, uh, and more people are allergic to peanuts than, you know, a lot of these other things like shellfish or other kinds of nuts. That's a great question. And we talked to some of the top scientists in the nation and the world on this, and we don't have, we don't have great answers. Um, the science is so new that I, I can't really tell you why it would be so much more extreme with peanuts than other allergy groups. 
The treatment that they've come up with is one of the doctors or epidemiologists. I'm not exactly sure what she was that you talked to near the end of that episode that they think that there's going to be a, a a medicine of some sort. And I got the impression it was going to be almost like a like a virus treatment, like it was going to have little bits of 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 peanut actually in it. Is that where the science is 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 headed? One of the big things we found in the reporting is that the science right now really focuses on um, giving small doses of things that one is allergic to so you can kind of build up a tolerance or a resistance to them. So, yeah, I know in the film there there was a quote that kind of referenced like a medicine, a solution. But a lot of what I've seen in the actual reporting is that you take a little bit of, you know, whatever you're allergic to each day and build up your tolerance. Uh, Ming Tsai, who is a big name chef in Boston, is is featured in that episode. And he did something really interesting uh, for dealing with food allergies. We have on a Saturday night, 15 allergen tables a night. I mean, a lot, enough that it could, if you didn't have a system, ruin your service. And now you ruin service for 85, 150 other people. When he opened his first restaurant, Ming created a food Bible, showing a complete list of the ingredients that go into every item on the menu. I took an Excel spreadsheet, which is just boxes, and it's just the eight allergens that are key. Soy, wheat, dairy, shellfish, peanuts, tree nuts, eggs, and fish. So those are the eight ones that are up top in a box, and then we just highlight that this dish has four of those eight. So it's crystal clear when you open the book and you look at the beef and potatoes, there's four allergens. The common ones. I mean, literally, everyone thinks this is such a hard thing to do. It's just a spreadsheet. All right, Stephen, we got it. It's a shorty, severe shellfish allergy. You got to use clean tongs, clean spoons. All right, here it is, you guys. Fire. So the sous chef for me pulls a ticket. The waiter then will highlight it. I initial it. So we have a check and balance that I literally physically checked it. Even on a Saturday night, I have to check these because this is life and death. Okay, guys, we got a smashed cucumber fired egg, soy, and gluten allergy. So no white soy. Yeah, Ming Tsai was incredible with what he's been doing to address it. And it's interesting, He, as you said, he's this very famous chef in Boston, but he also has a child with multiple food allergies and um, and watched his son nearly die from being given a glass of milk by um, a babysitter. So um, he has set up binders that kind of identify every food and every everything listed on his menu so that if someone comes in and they say is... You know, I'd like to order X. He, um, the waiters, waitresses can immediately tell him, well, that has gluten, that has nuts. This is what you're exposing yourself to. And he's made it um, like almost like an Excel spreadsheet. He's created them so that his kitchen staff can be responsive to that for anyone who comes in with an allergy. These six episodes, as far as I can remember, don't have many people that cross over from episode to episode. They're, you don't necessarily need to know about one thing to understand what's going on in the next one. So they're, they're fairly episodic and, and, and separate in that way. Is there something particular that you think is running through all of them that comes out more the more you watch? I think that the broader themes that one can draw from all six episodes, and you're absolutely right, they are very distinctive. There are no overlapping characters in any of them, is that we all need to start asking harder questions about what we eat and what's in our food. So, um, 
so that's kind of the broader take that you can have from this. And then also kind of looking at the conditions of many workers in the food industries. So yes, you don't have to watch them sequentially. Um, but, but they all kind of as a, as a whole and as a, you know, a finished product, they're all, um, there to help you think about what you eat, where it's coming from and why and how we should ask more questions of the people who are producing and manufacturing our food. One thing that came through, I think in all six episodes that struck me as, as a commonality is that in the food business and probably in every business, if, if the regulatory structure allows uh, gaps for companies to cut corners and save money, even at, at risk of of health, they will cut those corners. Food is a great and rich area for criminals um, because you can make a lot of money, you can commit a lot of crime, and you're not going to serve a lot of prison time. So it's like their new frontier right now. So that's something to be very aware of. And part of it is, um, you know, the government only has so many resources that they can devote to regulation. And so you really have to admit some industries are just, you know, introducing self-regulation. A lot of honey companies with honey fraud are just regulating themselves and doing their own testing to make sure that their brands and their reputations are preserved. Well, I think the honey episode, it's episode one uh, of the series and probably for me, the the most interesting of the six episodes, the fraud that's at the center of that episode is really kind of complicated and mm -hmm. pretty amazing that they were able to pull off. You've got this honey that's in China that was being faked like it was from Malaysia and imported to the United States and it was fraudulently tested in Germany. And it was this huge international conspiracy. How did how long did that go on and how did the, the federal regulators come to figure it out? Uh, there, there were two cases. And so that went on for quite a few years and there are still fugitives to this day who are, um, they're outstanding fugitives. One we feature in the film, um, Thomas Garkman, who's in Germany, and there are also fugitives in China. Um, the other thing that we point out is yes, you had tremendous amount of resources devoted to addressing, um, and kind of eradicating fraud in the honey industries and they made tremendous progress, but honey thieves are very smart and they're always kind of one step ahead of all of us. So we can't assume that, that the, that the fraud is just gone because there's a lot of money to be made in honey. We as Americans consume tremendous amounts of honey and we don't make enough because so many of our bees are dying. So we want the honey. We want it to come from somewhere. And that's where the, you know, criminals know that and know how to capitalize on that. By the late 90s, Chinese beekeepers had close to 7 million hives, a gigantic number by any reckoning. Between the huge hive count and adulteration by some producers with rice syrup, the Chinese honey industry created a massive surplus. This overflow was then sold to the world's hungriest honey importer, the U.S., Imports from other Asian countries suddenly surged. Malaysia exported 37 million pounds of honey in a single year. Not a bad haul for a country where all the bees combined can only produce about one-tenth of one percent of that amount. 
it's very simple. You know, a barrel comes from China, they put a different label on it, they fake the papers, and they send it on its way. And the fraud was premised on this idea that honey from China had certain uh, import, I'm not sure if duties is the right word, but certain charges on on Chinese imports that were not on imports from other countries. So they were faking the imports to appear as if they came from those other countries. What's wrong with China's honey that we can't import it from there the same as we can from other countries? Well, the reason that we had originally start the federal government had in, initiated these kind of levies or fines on Chinese honey, honey was because it was so much, it costs so much less. So it, um, so there is just the issue of um, the fact that it's cheaper, but there are also issues with honey, um, being laced with antibiotic, specifically chloramphenicol. So there are dangers with honey. Honey had, uh, China had its own problems with colony collapse disorder and, um, beekeepers there having to apply antibiotics to their honey. And the, the concern is that that's actually gotten into the honey from China itself. Trade policy is I don't know, kind of opaque and impenetrable to me. That's not one of those things I really know that much about. And it seemed like the documentary form and picking a really specific thing like honey was a good illustration uh, of that. Did you see that play out in, in, in trade policy? I mean, did it make sense as a visual uh, a way of explaining that that you didn't really have access to as a writer? That being able to tell that through the format of a film. Yeah, being able to show the maps and the, you know, the little diagram of the honey moving from one place to another. And it, it kind of made sense to me a little better when I was able to see it. Yes. I mean, I agree with you by doing that in a visual medium versus like a print medium. Um, it makes you really think and understand the the fraud in a different way. You know, because you're trying, like you said, you're trying to show it through maps and visuals than if I were writing an article for The New York Times about it. Yeah, I think my first reaction a lot of times to seeing something like that in a documentary is, oh, I, you know, I should be reading a book about this. And, you know, I would I'm, I'm having it dumbed down for me by appearing in a documentary, but it's just not the way we learn. And, you know, it's. It's not just that pretty pictures of, of, you know, video of honey, you know, being poured out of a barrel is is not dumbing it down. It's making it relatable at a, a sort of an elemental level that's easier to understand when you see these parts all added up together. Yeah, I agree with you. And Zero Point Zero does a beautiful job with that. <laughs> So, well, they really do. And they've got some experience at it. That's Anthony Bourdain's, the production company that makes Anthony Bourdain's show on CNN, which has fantastic uh, uh, cinematography. Did you get to see a lot of these things while they were happening? I mean, are you there talking to a lot of these people during the, the, the stand up interviews? Um, so for the, like the prior web series, I did nearly all the field production. And then I was, I did a couple of them for the, um, the actual production of the series, but I oversaw a team of four investigative reporters who worked in partnership with me on this. And we helped coordinate, um, the three separate production teams. Um, also the, I would say like Netflix has this wonderfully rigorous legal, legal department. So I was managing the team, um, and really managing the journalism 
also it was kind of this new frontier, but we decided to apply like all New York Times standards to the journalism, to the facts. So um, I spent less time in the field, but more time really making sure that this was journalistically bulletproof. The series is more focused on the the economics and the health aspects of these six different areas of the food business. And there's not as much attention on ethics and animal cruelty and that sort of thing, which I actually kind of weirdly found refreshing that the film did not try to bite off every aspect of, of everything it covered. What was that discussion like as you were building the, the, the scripts and the video for these episodes of what what aspects of these things you were and were not going to include? Well, I think because my background is from covering a lot of court cases and um, having covered a lot of like financial and economic um, reporting that that's just where my strengths are. And so that's what I'm, uh, you know, originally, that's always what I'm going to be drawn to. Um, but also, like you said, when you want these kind of rigorous bulletproof stories, one, when you're, when you look and depend more on like legal records, court records, financial records that, um, enabled us to form very solid spines of our reporting that we could then build on because all six topics are huge. And so you have to find something it's like grasping in the dark for, for what will kind of lead you to, um, what you're going to focus on. But in terms of the addressing your specific question about animal cruelty, that's just something that I haven't reported on as much. So I really just kind of started with what I knew. Did you come away from this changing your what you buy or what you eat in any of these six areas after going through the project? That's a great question. And a lot of people have been asking me that. Um, I, I, there are some things I don't eat, but generally, um, you know, this was a three-year experience where I'm also like raising a family. <laughs> so, um, I'm not too judgmental about what people eat because I think it's one of the hardest things you can do is just get dinner on the table. <laughs> so, um, I, I avoid shrimp, uh, generally because of the conditions of a lot of shrimp that comes from like Vietnam and Thailand. And that's an issue of both the treatment, there's a lot of kind of slave labor issues happening there and that shrimp is farmed in contaminated waters. But I also just kind of eat what's in front of me and eat what I can get on the table for my family at night or what my husband cooks. And, um, and I'm just grateful. Um, I think one of the hardest things we're all trying to do is work and keep going and make dinner. So I think anyone who watches this series, yes, they should start asking questions about what they eat and ask more questions and where their food is coming from. But the reality is they also have to eat. They can't be all that picky because we have busy demanding lives. I've never talked to Netflix about what priorities they have in this non-scripted area, but I know just from watching the Bill Nye series and some other documentaries that they've done that there's definitely a concerted effort at Netflix to educate on social and health and and other issues that have a, a really significant impact on people. Did you have any discussions to that effect with Netflix or with, you know, people with the production company about their conversations with Netflix about what Netflix actually wants from these properties? Um, I mean, Netflix had approval of like the individual episodes and um, 
were really supportive of everything we did. Um, it w- it was less about like, this needs to be a health episode. Um, and actually one of our counterparts on Netflix came from the times as well. So I felt like he had really good journalism instincts. So I, I always thought of it through the prism of like, what's good journalism, what's good stories, what, what really can stand on its own. That was the way I was thinking and approaching the work. And on the output side, I mean, Netflix has got a, a big platform. They've got 110 or so million worldwide, worldwide subscribers. And so something like this can, can get a big audience. Does that make you feel any differently about producing something that has got an opportunity to get such a big audience versus something? I know I think a lot of what you write for Politico is in their subscription based um, part where it's a very micro, very interested audience that you're writing for. Um, there, I know there's such different experiences, but I'm really enjoying both of them. You know, having worked for like big newspapers, I mean, it is a gift right now to be a journalist and get to work for Netflix. Prior to working on this project, I covered newspapers and the magazine industries for the New York times. So I wrote a lot of stories about layoffs, declines, you know, lack of resources in investigative journalism. We also know what kind of journalism is going through right now. So, um, so to kind of best answer your question, um, I feel like we just got like a lot of support from Netflix and, um, and I just felt very grateful, frankly, to have this experience when I know so many people who have these incredible journalistic skills and are, have not really found a place or home for them. Um, the audience, it, you know, it's humbling to work for, to, to work on and produce something for such a big audience. And it's interesting because, you know, people will try to play you off and they'll say, Oh, I'm writing for this or that. And you're like, well, (laughs) we're reaching a lot of people with this film. So, um, so, so that's interesting. Also, you know, Politico has been this wonderful counterpoint because right now I'm writing for a lot of industry and I'm learning so much. So, so much of what I did with Netflix was this broad brushstroke, big picture story. How do you make this as kind of accessible to everyone humanly possible to understand right now? I'm completely in the weeds of learning about how our food supply is changing under the Trump administration. And that's infinitely fascinating in a very different way. How is it changing? Um, I mean, it's cha- It's very complex in how it's changing and it, um, it, a lot of it's definitely, and I'm sure this is not a surprise to you. It's definitely moving in a direction of pro business. So like, for example, if you look at the chicken episode, um, any rights or the capacity to sue that chicken farmers and poultry farmers might've had when we were in production for Netflix have really gone away under the Trump administration. Like they, um, the Trump administration has kind of stripped any protections for, for poultry farmers. A lot of the changes are just happening in this minute way. So the journalism is really interesting and hard and challenging. Well, and when you say big business, I assume you mean Fortune 500, because it seems like a lot of the smaller uh, growers, the smaller uh, 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 dairy farmers and uh, garlic growers that you talk to in the series, they're they're not benefiting from from deregulation. It's 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 their their the companies that are running 
farms many times the size of what they're running that are that are benefiting from that deregulation. Yeah, and not even the farmers, but the kind of packagers and distributors. So, you know, there's what really just three or four companies who um, control all the chicken we eat in this world, um, three or four companies who control all the beef that we, we eat. Um, the, these are huge corporate goliaths. One thing I noticed in the garlic episode that uh, as I started seeing it, I noticed it in, in, in other episodes is that China in particular is doing things more cheaply than what we can do uh, in this country. In the garlic episode, it said that 90 percent of the world's garlic uh, is being grown in China. I mean, it just is a matter of trade policy and, and consumer oriented decision-making, why isn't that okay? I mean, if they can do it cheaper than we can and it's the same product, why don't we just let China grow the garlic? Why don't, why don't we just do something else? It's a good point. Um, I guess the question is, um, how much you want to factor in the kind of quality of the food you're consuming? Like, do you want antibiotic laced foods? Do you want foods that have been, um, processed and, um, peeled by Chinese prison labor. Um, and what are the sanitation issues that are involved with that? <laughs> 